Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. We are taking a break for the holidays, so I've got some shows that we uh, recorded previously that are going to be coming out for the next couple of weeks. And today, uh, we're going to listen again to my conversation with Jacqueline Burns Coven. Uh, She was uh, at the Department of Defense, and she worked at a place called Enigma Technologies, and now she uh, is at Chainalysis, where she is um, the head of cyber threat intelligence. Uh, We talked a lot about uh, phishing scams and other types of um, crypto crime, uh, and we talked about what they're doing at Chainalysis to uh, track that stuff. Uh, She's also part of the Ransomware Task Force, and before being at uh, Chainalysis, she was in the U.S. intelligence community. So with all that being said, let's get to the conversation, and we will be back with new episodes in early January. Thank you very much. Hey, Jackie, how are you? Hi, Matt. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Um, you are the third um, amazing woman that we've had on the podcast here from Chainalysis. Uh, had Aaron Plant on, who's kind of in your area of the firm, in uh, sort of the cybercrime area. Uh, Aaron was fascinating. Um, I still think she's like a CIA plant, but I'm not going to say that to too many people. <laughs> and spoke to Kim Grauer as well from Chainalysis, your head of research, who um, is always doing amazing work. So I'm really happy to have you on. And, uh, you know, it's not like third time's the charm. Everybody's been great, but um, I really love what you guys are doing at Chainalysis. Um, so thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. And, you know, you. Kim and and Aaron are amazing. I feel very lucky to be working with them. Yeah, for sure. So to start with, I thought um, we're recording on Friday the 13th, so hopefully you're not trichodecophobic. Um, But the big thing that's going on in crypto right now is the FTX trial. And I know that's not quite your area, but I was just curious, um, as someone who's in crypto, as I am, you know, have you been keeping tabs on the trial and sort of what's coming out there um, in terms of the background on, on how FTX imploded? Sure, definitely keeping track. I am kind of you know, watching uh, with the rest of the world. I'm not involved in in that case and can't really comment on it. But it certainly we see all of the the macroeconomic activities and events are impacting um, every facet of crypto. So certainly trying to to keep tabs on this as, as it will certainly have ripple effects. Yeah, for sure. It's just really blown my mind um, coming from the traditional financial world before this one. I was at Bloomberg covering Wall Street, just seeing how brazen they were um, in terms of, you know, allegedly stealing customer money for all sorts of purposes. Like they didn't even, you know, give it a couple of years to then and then start doing this. You know, they just like right off the bat were <laughs> taking money from them uh, from folks, and I just I just have found that so uh, incredible that I guess there's just nobody. And there was no adult in the room there to tell them, you know, hey, that's completely illegal. Um, but the other thing I thought of when, when I was thinking about speaking to you is, you know, guest after guest on this, this podcast has sort of brought up the point that a lot of those failures in 2022 were all centralized. You know, there was FTX, there was Celsius, BlockFi, Voyager, you know, the list is long. And they were all centralized and there was no transparency into what they were doing. And so, you know, they could get away with kind of some shenanigans. Whereas, what you're doing is sort of, it's all on chain and you're, you know, using forensics and you're using the public aspect of the blockchain database to, to track people who are doing nefarious stuff. 
Do you feel that that's, you know, is, did we make a turning point, do you think, last year in terms of people understanding that the risks of centralized uh, applications still in the DeFi world? You know, it, it is kind of unfortunate that those were, you know, some of the larger headlines related to crypto in the last year. But I, from my perspective, as a person who just focuses 100% on crypto badness, um, I need those those exchanges and those those DeFi services, those compliance teams. There are good people there. And the, the good guys in the ecosystem have done so much to combat illicit financing from thefts, from ransomware, from scams. And so it I think for me it's important to to be able to to highlight the the good work that's being done um by the crime fighters of the world that, you know, aren't necessarily gaining headlines, but um they're continuing to to do their jobs day in, day out, um, despite kind of the cloud that has loomed over over the space with this you know, the trials. Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting how FTX was was making an effort to become a U.S. operation, or they had a U.S. operation, but things didn't quite work out there. Um, are you optimistic about you know you need those you know I guess you need the Coinbase's of the world, the Gemini's of the world, right? To like you say, have their compliance teams and and be partners in this. Um, how do you feel about the regulatory environment right now in the U.S. in, in in relation to those, you know, centralized exchanges that are trying to do the right thing and trying to play by the rules, when they would probably say, "Well, we don't really know what the rules are right now." Yeah, I'm not really best placed to comment on that. I'm more focused on regulations as they pertain to like reporting illicit activity, um, and. And and so I think those are, are some of the like regulations that I'm looking at and following. And I think overall there's been such a push in my space from the regulatory and law enforcement perspective um, to be able to shine a spotlight on illicit actors globally, illicit exchanges that are laundering um, dirty money, um, seeing the sanctions designations of mixers, darknet markets, and exchanges based in in Russia that um, have really made an impact on imposing cost and sending a message that um, those that would skirt the rules, um, even if they are beyond U.S. borders, can be impacted. Um, And the U.S. isn't alone in this. We're actually seeing global regulators coming to bat, you know, South Korea and the U.K., for instance. So, um, I think there's a, a steady and also unpredictable uh, cadence of of uh, regulations and sanctions designations that are really sending um, a strong signal um, and, and taking threat actors um, that may be laundering or processing dirty money by surprise, which is, um, I think, a very positive thing for the, the Yeah, that's great to hear. And that leads to, I was going to ask... Um, what are since crypto is such a global um, market and industry, you must be dealing with, like you said, governments and and exchanges all around the world. What um, are there certain areas of the world that, that are easier to work with now, or is, is everybody coming along kind of on the same page? Or how would you characterize the different um, parts of the world where crypto is, is active in terms of 
helping you guys when you have an investigation or maybe in flagging things to folks? Like, how, how is that? How's that looking these days? I think we're leagues um, better than we were when I was began in this industry about five years ago. I think there's always room for capacity building. I think um, FATF always, um, the Financial Action Task Force always releases um, very um, descriptive guidelines for identifying potentially suspicious activity. Is that a global organization? It is, it is. And, um, but there are certainly jurisdictions and we, we frequently point them out or that there are outliers um, in our crypto crime report, which basically summarizes um, illicit activity across the spectrum of, of crimes that may occur. But we see kind of the, the same culprits um, geographically often that are, are receiving illicit funds. However, it's a, it's a smaller consolidated list of services than we saw um, several years ago, for instance. So, um, I think uh, we're still seeing some of the same offenders, but a, a, definitely a smaller list. And I think that is in large part due to, to law enforcement and uh, regulatory actions that are um, able to to shine a spotlight on these services that that would be processing illicit funds. Okay. What um, maybe right here at the top, we could maybe you could give us like listeners an example of what, what you are investigating, like maybe what's the most common, um, you know, uh, illicit activities like ransomware or hacking or whatever. And then just sort of maybe take us through the steps in a very high level process of like what the, what, how the crime is committed and then where you guys come in and how you try to try to track down who um, committed the crime. Sure. So I lead our cyber threat intelligence team. So my team is looking at identifying wallets belonging to those that would scam, steal, and extort for cryptocurrency, as well as the tools and services they rely on for their attacks. And um, that can also include uh, the goods and services um, that are illicit that can be purchased with cryptocurrency. So for example, child sexual abuse material, um, opioids, uh, stolen credit card information, uh, so we focus on you know dark net markets, fraud shops, stolen funds, scams, uh, ransomware, malware. <laughs> so it is just um, all of the possible spectrum of badness. Uh, really, is what my team focuses on, um, and certainly um, related to cyber threat intel, ransomware is has loomed large over the last few years, and not just in terms of the volume of attacks or the volume of proceeds they've been able to extort, but in terms of it being elevated to a, a national security issue. And, and so for, for that reason, uh, ransomware is incredibly interesting to me because we're not just looking at the ransom payment address, that, that, uh, that wallet that receives the ransom payment, we're all looking we, from that one wallet, we can kind of look back at all the tools and services, the entire network of actors that are comprised that organization um, that actually um, 
was a part of that campaign. You know, so we we know. I think it was I. I was talking to Kim maybe about this that you guys wrote about ransomware as a service. Like that's a new development, right? Where they're folks are like farming this out. Yeah, it, it's it, incredibly isn't easy that amazing? to become a part of it now. I mean, you it, with very little technical skill, you can buy commercial malware, phishing kits um, to conduct a number of crimes with um, a minimal deposit, really. Wow. So um, the bar has certainly, uh, the barrier to entry is is certainly low for, for many of the cyber crimes that we look at. Um, Steelers is one, uh, another one. So drainers that are targeting people's wallets and NFTs. Right. Right. Um, we've seen many high profile cases recently of celebrities and uh, other, you know, entrepreneurs. Um, it wasn't in Kevin Rose was, just recently. Oh, got, yeah, he got hit. He's Mark been in crypto as long as anybody almost. Right, right. So even sophisticated investors are are um, subject to these types of things. And um, the, the tools to, to commit these acts are relatively inexpensive. Yeah. You mentioned, mentioned ransomware. Um, specifically, like, so that's when bad guys will sort of infiltrate um, a computer system and maybe it's like a corporation or a hospital and they'll, they'll basically say, hey, you're not going to get your data back or your systems back unless you pay us X amount of crypto um, to this wallet. Um, but then it sounds like you were saying that it's kind of elevating into national security concerns. Is, is that because the ransomware attackers are now not just going to corporations or private enterprises, but they're going to government agencies or things like that? Yeah, we've seen several high-profile statements from uh, the administration and law enforcement that have likened ransomware to to terrorism, even and we're, the I think just the I would say the the height of it, but really the lows of it. You know, targeting hospitals amid the COVID nineteen pandemic, yeah. um, we're seeing um, critical infrastructure like Colonial Pipeline, um, schools, municipalities, um, the defense industrial complex, all of those things have, have and continue to be hit. Um, and while we did see a lull in ransomware activity last year, a 40% decline in ransom payments, this year is very different. Um, this year is on track to be one of, if not the worst years in terms of ransomware revenue. Uh, so they're back. They're back in full force, unfortunately. And um, yeah, it, it really nothing's off the table for them. We're seeing supply chain attacks that enable ransomware gangs to rack up hundreds, even thousands of victims from a single exploit. And, um, you know, they're getting, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for just one group. And, and so unfortunately... Wow. It's a competitive ecosystem where they like to copycat each other, and I am afraid that we'll likely see more of these. Um, the use of zero days in ransomware now, it, that is at a level we've never seen before. What was that? Uh, it's a vulnerability in software that has never previously never been disclosed and until, until the attack event. Uh, okay. Um, is that because ransomware is like 
these firms or um, you know any of the entities getting attacked, it, it seems like it's kind of low hanging fruit. Is is that what's why there's so much of it and why it's on the rise? Because if you're if you have a large operation like a corporation where you've got maybe hundreds or thousands of people who need to be vigilant about their security and like one of them gets fished or they you know their credentials get stolen and then the ransomware folks are inside is, is that the vulnerability that that you guys see and and that's sort of like why this is hard to combat it's very hard to combat so even the most sophisticated organizations who spend a large percentage of of budget on cybersecurity is there everyone is fallible nothing is off the table unfortunately we're in the stage of big game hunting so where threat actors are able to be choosy find targets that are able to to shell out large large payouts that have uh insurance policies that will will cover you know eight figure ransoms at times so but we're seeing both we're seeing this big game hunting dynamic um where sophisticated actors can deploy really sophisticated attacks phishing vulnerabilities zero days uh, which are not cheap um and we're also seeing the less sophisticated actors going after the low-hanging fruit and we think and we're seeing this play out in average ransom demands. We're seeing like eight figure ransoms and we're still seeing like um, like three, four figure ransoms too. And we think that there's been a large you know, public effort to make people aware of ransomware, enforce best practices. Certainly insurance policies have gotten more stringent in requiring those that they cover to have MFA, to have endpoint detection, to have training, to have a plan if and when they're hit by ransomware, to have backups so that maybe they need not pay if they are hit. So um, we think it has become you know more challenging to to target certain entities by ransomware actors. So that might be pushing one that are a little bit desperate for cash or not as technically sophisticated towards the lower hanging fruit. Um, but we're certainly seeing large, you know, public and private sector entities that might be surprising um, on uh, data leak sites. So these ransomware actors will basically name and shame victims on their site. So it um, becomes public knowledge. And so it kind of ratchets up the pressure uh, for them to pay the extortion demand. Yeah. I think it's also an important point to make that, as you guys have reported, um, the amount of illicit activity that's, that crypto is used for is, is shockingly small. Um, I don't know. If, I think this might still be current, but it was something like zero point one percent of all crypto activity is illicit. Um, and so, you know, that it, it's a uh, a lot of people, I think, I think crypto has a bad reputation and a lot of people think it's just all scams, but the numbers don't bear that out at all. Um, so with that in mind, um, I, was, I wanted to ask if you guys have ever done an analysis, like um, maybe we could um, coin a few new terms here, like crypto crime, you know, like, um, like, like decrime, like de- decentralized crime versus traditional crime, like trad crime. <laughs> trad crime. Have you... Do you um, 
have you ever looked at like what is the number you know what's the amount of of money you know that's laundered and extorted like in the real world that's not digital versus what we're seeing in the in the digital world is that anything you guys have ever kind of tried to put a you know comparison that's really interesting no and i'm glad you bring up that point like uh, consistently our calculations always come up with of cyber crime, crypto crime being a fraction of a percentage um, compared to overall crypto activity. Um, and to answer your question, I don't think we can um, we can quantify the dollars in traditional financial crime because there there's no way to trace it. And and that's a, a point uh, like we tried to make consistently is that you know it this. The traceability of cryptocurrency is its Achilles heel for, for bad actors. It is very hard to, to launder and get away with. It can be quantified. And yes, um, it is a fraction of a percentage overall that is uh, related to crime. Um, but that fraction of percentage is 100% of my job. And being able to see all of that is a lot. So, to, um, so yeah. what, um, I just want my boss to hear that. It's a lot. No, but um, the fact that you can see <laughs> all of it is fascinating. And for a nosy person like me that likes to understand the ins and outs of all of these different crime typologies, is there's nothing, um, no better lens to look at it. And I love it because it is often that like missing puzzle piece when other indicators, other visibility and telemetry can only get you halfway there on the who done it attribution or where did it go or who else is involved? How did they get in? How did they break into the house? Uh, meaning, like, meaning like an institution that they hacked into. And often looking at their shopping cart, looking at all those the infrastructure and tools and services and commodity malware encrypting services that they purchase can can tell the full picture just by kind of looking at the receipts, so to speak. Yeah. So depending on what they're using or where they get it from, you might that might paint a picture for you about where this where these people are located and that that sort of thing. Just like give you more clues uh, as you go about your investigation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you really, you run yeah, into a wall very quickly in the traditional financial ecosystem. And I love to, I love, so I, I work with a lot of financial institutions and um, many who are very sophisticated in this space already, but I love speaking with newcomers because I, that moment when the light bulb comes on for them, that they're, they, they're like kind of untethered they're, They can actually see like so much more than they can in the traditional, in the traditional financial system that they um, you know, were brought up in. Yeah, you get to, you get to blow their minds a little bit. Um, <laughs> it, hearing you talk, it, it made me wonder if you know. I think a lot of times people like feel like cops. You know, if you're a cop, you know, you're kind of always dealing with criminals or people who are in bad situations. Um, that's kind of what you're doing here in crypto, but are you able to separate like that from the bigger picture in crypto? Or like, I know you see a lot of the bad stuff, but are you, are you taking in the good stuff as well? That's, that's a really interesting question. And because we can see so much, 
sometimes it feels like the work never stops. Um, um, so it's a, a blessing and a curse. Um, so I think it's really important, like for like mental mental health and and cyber and investigations and law enforcement. I think is all so super important. Burnout is a super important topic. So celebrating the wins, I think, is really important. And I will. I'm so fortunate to work with people who are just you know smart, but also um, have a sense of humor, and um, we can you know make light of situations and you know know when to take a break and have a beer. Yeah, certainly, there's a lot to celebrate. Um, even though a lot of what we do is really serious, and there, thankfully. Um, seizures of assets, identification of the perpetrator, um, successful court cases that um, are all the wins that kind of buoy us um, even in the, in the darker times. Yeah. Um, so prior to T-analysis, you were an intelligence officer with the Department of Defense. What, did that, like, what, what can you tell me about what you were doing there and, and how did that prepare you for, for what you're doing now in the, in the Web3 space? Yeah, that's that's actually a, a perfect segue from our, your last question because um, you know I was doing um, pretty serious work in the Department of Defense. I loved it. Um, I was an intern in college and went on to work full time. So I had never had any exposure to to private sector um, prior to to joining the government and. I uh, was deployed to the Middle East. Um, I was definitely a beneficiary of the, the post 9-11 age, which was um, all about you know, destroying the silos that had caused intelligence failures with 9-11. And so I was um, working with interagency. I feel like I rode every ride at the amusement park. I was just loving it, raising my hand to, to do all the assignments, doing things I had no business doing in my 20s. Like sometimes I'd have to pinch myself. I felt like Forrest Gump sometimes. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, how did I get in this room? Um, and it was a wonderful experience and uh, worked with incredible people. But honestly, had never... Blockchain and cryptocurrency had never entered my vocabulary at the time when I was in government. I'm sh- sure, most certain that that has changed since then. So just to kind of set the stage, this is like from, yeah, so you were with the DOD from roughly uh, 2008 to about 2015. That's correct. That's correct. And I decided to go to grad school, get my master's, thinking that. Uh, that would set me up for management when I would return back to government. Uh, I had no intention of leaving government, really. Um, and that was my first kind of foray outside of the black box of classifications and compartmentalization. And mm-hmm. I had access to, for the first time in my life, to things like social media and data science and blockchain and 2015, as you mentioned, um, in New York, where I went to grad school, was it? It felt like such uh, like a renaissance to me, and it was during this time where um, startups 
were the thing and being more like a startup and disruption. And um, I was so taken by that message after being in government for so long about how fast and how innovative startups could be and um, in all these new technologies that I had no exposure to in government. Um, it wasn't exactly mm, like yeah. Jason Bourne with like touch screens and holograms and things like that. And um, that's when I first came in touch in contact with blockchain. And it was really the uh, blockchain that I fell in love with first before cryptocurrency came later. I, I loved um learning about this novel technology. I loved how it incorporated politics and economics and philosophy and engineering and math. And it was just such a, so many smart, interesting people building things, which um, I think was such a needed um, optimism that after, you know, several years working on, you know, dark, serious stuff in, in government, it was just so refreshing to 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 kind of enter this ecosystem in, in uh, 2015. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think um, obviously crypto is a huge industry. Back then, it was a lot smaller, but I've always been very impressed with um, that. There was a good chunk of, of this industry that are, are full of good people, and they're they're literally literally trying to make the world a better place, and they think they can do it, and that's kind of what motivates them. And that was something that was refreshing to me. After having covered Wall Street for a long time, um, you know, a lot of the motivation there is, is money, and that's about it. And you know, the financial crisis was something I went through firsthand, and you know, saw that to devastating effect. So, getting uh, after that, you know, like transitioning into like covering blockchain and 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 what the Web three kind of space has become was was great because there are a lot of people in in that uh, in that world who, like you said, are optimistic and they think you know. They're not trying to replace anything, but they're trying to pre- provide an alternative for folks that I find really um, admirable. Um, uh, so, can, can you talk about anything like what you're doing in the Middle East for the DoD? Was were you like in um, trying to disrupt, uh, you know, communications networks or, or anything like that? That that um, I'm just fascinated by by that kind of work. Uh, I, I'll say that I ended my tenure, uh, being a nuclear weapons analyst and, you know, thought I was taking a hard right to join a a blockchain (laughs) startup, but, but sometimes I feel like I'm just a nuclear weapons program accountant some days when we're tracking North Korean stolen funds, but, uh, (laughs) I know I've, I've had a, uh, it does come full circle with the Lazarus group, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I wanted to get to the Lazarus group, but first of all, I'd love to just take another step back. You mentioned how blockchain and what fascinated you partly it was, you know, it incorporated economics and politics and, you know, economics and all these other disciplines. When you were growing up um, as a girl, was that, were you a jack of all trades? Was that like, were you interested in all those sorts of things and how they intersect or, or how would you, Characterize like why though that sort of broad spectrum appealed to you so much. Yeah, I am actually an army brat, so I moved probably thirteen times before I went to college, and so we would just kind of 
airdrop in to a new location, a new school, a new country, a new language, and and just have to make do. Like this is your home for the next year or the next two years, um, and just being having to kind of get up to speed quickly on your new environment and make friends. Um, and I actually, I love that lifestyle. I know it's not for everyone, but I think that um, really started my desire to kind of, you know, learn new cultures, new, learn new languages, which kind of, and I also would like get, get bored if we lived somewhere too long, <laughs> like, Oh, it's been two years. We should probably move. So <laughs> And I, in this space, you could never be bored. Um, I'm, it's constantly humbling. It just moves so much faster than any other intelligent subject I've ever been a part of. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, why I see myself in this space for the rest of my career. It's, it's just, it's constantly innovating in, in, um, in ways that that benefit people and uh, and you know build businesses, but also you know at my job, watching how threat actors are adapting to. Um, so I think my my upbringing in um, moving around has has certainly influenced me. My my parents being in the military certainly gave me like a sense of of mission and service. Although I was the black sheep in the family, and I went. Uh, I was a civilian in the Department of Defense and didn't join the military, and I'll, I'll never live that down. But um, I'm I'm hoping they understand now what I'm doing. I think it was a little bit uneasy for them um, to try to describe what a startup was. Well, if you can describe blockchain forensics to your parents, then you're a couple steps ahead of me because uh, I'm still struggling with that. Thanks. Um, yeah. Any uh, tips? Yeah. I was curious, um, as an army brat, you know, you kind of mentioned you have to become really good at making friends quickly and, and adapting to new environments. How do you think that affected your ability to like maintain relationships through your life? Has that been difficult because you always got kind of uprooted and went somewhere new? You know, it's definitely, there were definitely, you know, hard times um, when you're like, still wearing MC hammer parachute pants and then you go to the next school and they're not cool anymore. Like that can be pretty traumatic, but, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a steep learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, no, I loved it. It helps you identify very quickly or become very good at identifying your people. Um, and you know, who to, who to spend your time on and who not to even bother with, you know, and um, I yeah, think that's a really interesting point because most kids would never have that experience, right? Because they're kind of staying in the same place. So they might not realize that, oh, this whole dynamic here is replicated at school after school all over the country, all over the world. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And that's kind of what I love about the crypto ecosystem. Or like when I joined Chainalysis like five years ago, nobody was from this space. Like nobody had years of experience doing it and everyone has such a unique cool background um and it's just such a diverse ecosystem like there's no like 
pedigree or click. It, it was just, it, and it requires so many different disciplines and it requires so many, so much unique expertise from, from various backgrounds. And, and that's why I think it's just been so cool, not just people at Analysis, but people in the ecosystem in general. Um, I feel like I've just yeah, I've been able to totally find agree. my people. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge reason why I started Decentral with my partner, because I just found the people so fascinating after I wrote my book about Ethereum and just, you know, kind of took a deep dive into it. And, and everybody I've met, you know, back then and, and up until this day, there's just always just just incredibly interesting people coming from all different walks of life um, into this space. And uh, that's, that's something that I just found as a storyteller, you know, that, that you just can't ask for anything more than that. Um, uh, you obviously had a military family, so what, I, I would assume there was a little bit of pressure to go into the into the military. But was that you, you said you're the black sheep? You kind of took a left turn and went into the civilian side of the DoD. Was was that sort of was that always the plan, or how, how do you remember um, kind of thinking about your future when you were in high school or and then getting into college? Yeah, I really didn't. So. I was very cognizant of like the influence of my family. And I, and so I decided not to go to any military academies and kind of go to college with like an open mind. And I actually found like fairly quickly, I had an influential professor. Um, and this is, you know, not too far after um, 9-11 that taught um, an Islam and politics course. And, um, the Iraq war was very much, um, you know, in public consciousness. And I was so fascinated because I lived all over the world, but I have never lived in the Middle East. And, and so that, so starting in college, I kind of walked onto this idea, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to understand. And what started as more of like, I think out of, wanting to serve and under like, you know, work in the Middle East for, for the government actually turned into more of like a respect because I took up Arabic, studied Arabic all through college. I lived abroad in the Middle East, but uh, not only did I live there, I lived with families and that just kind of just changed my whole That's perspective a great way on to it. Get a sense of a culture, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. For sure. And and so um, again, just uh, just feeling like I could, you know, airdrop in these cultures and just leave was not what happened. Like these people became my families, and and um, we're still very much in touch today. But it it certainly has like has influenced me. Um, and, um, and my, my, my path, um, and I think it made me mm -hmm. a better intelligence officer. Yeah. Just as a quick aside, it's fascinating, um, thinking about crypto in the, in the Muslim world because, you know, of the, the Sharia law and, and, um, the uh, prohibition against, you know, earning interest and things like that. It's, it's a really interesting, what, what some of the stuff that is coming out of the Middle East there, I find fascinating because there are those um, kind of extra constraints that they have. Um, I don't think I have a question, but I just, uh, we've, we've re reported on that a little bit at the Central and I just find that really 
um, you know, that, that extra twist makes things kind of like super uh, interesting to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we've um, actually seen some, some um, groups, some terrorist groups in the Middle East that have actually shut down cryptocurrency fundraising operations because of the traceability of it. So, like from a, oh, really? a, a terrorist mm-hmm. financing perspective, it um, they've learned that it's again the Achilles' heel of of illicit activity because it is so traceable. Yeah. Much rather have a bag of cash in the trunk of a car. Um, <laughs> so, just one, one thing I wanted to before we get uh, a little further up into your uh, uh, into your resume, uh, one thing that stuck out to me, um, and so you, you worked for a place called Enigma Technologies Incorporated. Um, you were a commercial manager. That come on, that's a front, right? That's just like that sounds like either <laughs> you were working for the Penguin in like the Batman universe, or that's just like CIA all the way through. It's Enigma Technologies. <laughs> no, I. I'm my kidding, of friend, course, but no, that, my that just sounds like too me. good. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, you you're hitting on something there because my my friends joke that I I choose my employer based off of their names based on like how fun their names are. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's real. Analysis is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, let's get back to like chain analysis and, and what you guys are doing now. And just, I know you, we, we spoke about ransomware. Um, I was curious just to touch on, you know, we, we mentioned mixers also briefly. And, and for folks who might not know, a mixer is a, cryptocurrency kind of utility that you can send like a bunch of Bitcoin into the mixer and then that Bitcoin gets lumped in with a whole bunch of other Bitcoin and then kind of separated and mixed and then you get the same amount out but it's not like you know it's uh, the in and out has been obfuscated so it's it's a nice way to just try to cover your tracks um, tornado cash was was a big one and I think it was, uh, I believe it was last year, right, that OFAC uh, put it on the sanctions list. Uh, it was the first time that a piece of code had been um, added to the, the sanctions for, uh, you know, no American citizen could interact with it anymore and all sorts of things. Um, I just wondered, uh, is, uh, it, that, that, do, are you paying attention to that? I would imagine you are. And I, I just was curious about, you know, the pros and cons you, of, of what you have thought about that decision. Um, and, and just wanted to kind of just ask you a little bit about that. Yeah, I I don't really engage with actors that are, are leveraging Tornado Cash so much these days. Uh, with every, like whether Blender.io, which is a mixer that was, take, uh, was designated, um, with each one that is either designated or taken offline. There are three others that are <laughs> popping up in their place. So yeah. I, I'm more focused on finding the the next one, the new hotness. Where am I seeing, where are current threat actors using today? And I think for me, most of the volume is going to the successors um, that have emerged since those designations. Yeah, like ThorSwap was in the news this week. That's another mixer. They're mm-hmm. trying to, uh, looks like they're trying to get a little more friendly with, with folks like you guys, like Chainalysis. I, I don't know that for sure, but they, they sort of made some changes to their front end and, and how you can interact with it uh, to make it a little more difficult. And then they're, they're also, uh, I guess, participating in some address screening. So maybe, you know, known 
addresses that are, you know, um, bad actors could get screened out. But um, do you do you get into the philosophical side of that where it's like that's a piece of you know these mixers are all pieces of code basically, and there are legitimate uses for um, mixers when you know privacy is involved or you might want to be donating money to somebody that you know or uh, but you don't want people to know how much is actually in your wallet or you know you might live in a country that's you know sanctioning or it's you know there's 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 a lot of different reasons I think legitimate uses for a mixer as well as the illegitimate uses where do you come down on that part of it and, and how that should be kind of where is the balance there Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a super interesting topic, and it, it's one that I I follow more out of personal interest than that has to do with with my my job. But you know, I have certainly have friends in the ecosystem, have teammates that use mixers, um, not for anything illicit, but just for privacy. And um, so, there certainly are alternatives available, um, and you know, with each you know, technology is going to continue to evolve. There's going to be new, new protocols, new services, um, new out there. So, I, I, I don't think I don't think innovation is is stifled in that respect. And um, no, I I definitely respect um, the the use and understand the use for for legitimate uses as, and I. Um, but for me, I mean, my job is just tracking those that would use it for laundering uh, dirty money and illicit proceeds. Um, right. And, right, right. And, and certainly they can be used for that. Yeah. And another thing I find really interesting here is, um, you know, you can move crypto around and put it through a mixer or try to cover your tracks as much as you want, but until you can get that crypto out of the ecosystem and, and translate it or, or you know um, uh, you know have it exchanged for you know euros or dollars or rubles or whatever what may what, what have you you know it, it's kind of like you've you've only got gains on paper um, and that that seems to me to be like the really hard thing here is that there are still countries um, like Russia and you know, North Korea to an extent, I think, and, and some others where, you know, there are crypto exchanges that are, are definitely not playing by the rules and they will do that gladly for you. Um, how much is that a frustration for you? And, and, and is, that, is that the sort of main pain point that, that you come across? Like if, if there was no way to do that, your job would be a lot easier, I would imagine. Mm, yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I think... Um, you know, as we said, we're talking about earlier, there are a, there's a small number of services in, in some jurisdictions that are not responsive to, to law enforcement, um, and are not, um, not enacting robust KYC AML policies at all. And, um, you know, Threat actors will follow the path of least resistance. Um, now, what we saw after designation of some of the, the more offending uh, institutions that were laundering everything from DPRK, stolen funds, to ransomware proceeds, to scams, um, 
that those that you know didn't uh, enact robust policies uh, could be designated. Um, and in many instances, those designations were were business killers. Um, deposits dropped to zero, and so these these threat actors of all stripes had to find a new a new way to launder their proceeds, uh, their dirty money. And for some time after those designations uh, on some of those major exchanges and mixers, uh, we actually saw threat actors holding on to their funds in private wallets for a lot longer <laughs> as they tried to figure out mm. uh, what to yeah. do with them. Like what system could they trust? This is yeah, a new mixer. Who owns it? How does mm-hmm. it even work? Um, but I think what the last, I would say, two, three years have shown is that like, by following the money, it does shine a spotlight on the offending services uh, that are the go-tos for criminals of all stripes. And that there are, there are tools, uh, there are policy tools um, at our disposal if, um, if they're not going to, to comply with global norms. Yeah. I'd love to ask you a little bit about the Lazarus Group because it seems like they are one of the biggest um, bad actors here. And, and that for those who don't know, they um, and, and I, w- I wanted to ask you if I have this correct. Well, my understanding is that it's it's sponsored by the North Korean state. I, I don't think that the people working for them are ne- necessarily in North Korea, like, but they are sponsoring hackers and other folks in different parts of the world, like Europe or where whatever. Um, and, and what they're doing is ransomware. They're they're hacking bridges, um, which you know seem to be a, a very fat target in, in recent past. Um, and they're pulling in hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars um, for North Korea, which most people think, and I believe uh, this is something that the DOJ has said um, that you know they think that, that a lot of that money is going to help fund the, the nuclear development program for North Korea. Um, do I have that right about how kind of the rough? Um, architecture works of the Lazarus group, um, that they're not necessarily, you know, in North Korea, but that they're sort of have this network of people around the world that, that work for them. Yeah. My understanding, um, and I'm not following the, this inner integral structure of the group, um, as close as many others and our company and, and many of the partners we work with. Um, but we have seen this kind of multifaceted, approach of of getting um, access to victims that's everything from standing up fake recruiting for for jobs that um, is you know actually infecting the those that would be applying for the job with with malware they're also applying for jobs with in companies uh, in the crypto ecosystem or even in the cryptocurrency support chain. Um, and so when they can't um, actually um, develop an exploit for something in the supply chain, they're looking at getting a job on the inside, which is, uh, there's been a lot of public advisories. Would the supply chain be like mining operations or what, what do you mean by supply chain on the crypto side? Um, just a, a, a software component or a supplier to different uh, cryptocurrency businesses. Um, so just uh, trying okay. to different ways of breaking into the house. When the window is closed, they'll try the, the basement. They'll try to get a ladder. You know, all the, it's, their ingenuity is quite astounding. And 
we've seen kind of this you know, going from centralized exchanges to DeFi to now even gambling services are on the menu. Um, and, and so it, they're really, you know, it's really quite incredible what they've been able to accomplish. I think over like hundreds of millions stolen this year alone. And um, my goodness, we have to recalculate that pretty regularly because of the, the frequency and scale of these attacks. Yeah, it seems like every week I read something about Lazarus Group is involved in something. Um, do, do you know, um, does North Korea, you know, are, is, is part of their thing that they also will um, exchange that fiat, uh, that crypto for fiat, like in, inside the country? Is that something that they're doing or the government is sponsoring that sort of thing? Do you know? There is a great um, release from from law enforcement and treasury, I believe a few years ago that talked about the use of uh, China, China-based individuals to launder the proceeds through, through Chinese banks. Um, they even used gift cards at some point. I, I think um, it, it's pretty like when you've been able to like read some of the public uh, public documentation about their laundering. It's, it's, it's kind of um, diversified too. I believe they use the same launderer as um, Hush Puppy, that like infamous uh, business email compromise scammer based in Nigeria. Um, so again, like all criminals of all stripes using the, the Nigerian prince. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, he's got quite a prolific yeah. Instagram account back in the day, flaunting uh, his riches. Do you? Um, I mean, all this talk about money launderers. Do, do you ever have you run into the mafia, like any of the mafias around the world, using crypto to to launder funds, or is that like are they just still old school? That's that's pretty interesting. I know there were recently designations. Um, related to fentanyl and the Sinaloa cartel. Um, I think, you know, we're focused on a lot of the marketplaces and uh, social platforms where the buying and selling of illicit goods is, is happening. And um, certainly there, there could potentially be a, a mafia component there, but um, from the wallet from tracing the wallet's perspective, it, it's really tying it back to, to individuals and monikers um, that enables law enforcement to tie it to a greater network or, or organization. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about you, you guys are, you're going after all these like really kind of scary people and there's hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, on the line here. Do you, Analysis, do you guys ever get worried about your, your own safety? Is that does that come up or how do you guys think about or feel about that sort of aspect of it? Yeah, I think people in our industry are certainly um, aware of the risks and the dangers. And I have you know good colleagues across um, the cyber threat landscape who um, are are dealing with um, criminals that are financially motivated, but um, have employed violent tactics in the past. So unfortunately, it's something to, to be very cognizant of. Um, and um, 
there's there's certainly services on being sold in the underground um, that have you know violence as a service. It, it's so it's something that we look at every day, um, and unfortunately for them, those services are being sold in cryptocurrency, and that's just another thing that we can trace. Yeah, it's scary. I, when I, I mean, it doesn't even compare, but I was doing some reporting a few years ago on Ripple and XRP and the XRP army, as they're known, they really don't like that. And uh, I got some notifications that my, I was being doxxed on the dark web and things like that. And it just makes you really kind of just take a minute to think about how like scary that is and how like yeah. nebulous as well, because you just have no idea what's going on. Um, so just like at the end here, what, where um, where do you see things headed here? I, I know you said r- ransomware is is, pro- is already broken the record, right? And and it's it's getting worse. Um, what what do you? What's next for you? And then like, how do you f- see the next couple of years um, in, in terms of what you're doing? Are you, are you winning the fight? Or how, I know you said compared to five years ago, you know you're getting way more cooperation and, and the world governments and um, regulatory agencies seem to be much more on the same page. Um, how would you, how do you think about the next couple of years um, and where things yeah, are headed? So I, I think there's a lot of work that is being done and has been done that will, will continue to bear fruit. Um, the you know blockchain is immutable. So we're even, crimes that happened historically, we can still use those cryptocurrency addresses and identifiers to to be able to, you know, for cases years down the road. So I think the continued, we're, we're hopeful for the continued use of um, that intelligence to support law enforcement efforts, seizure of assets, imposing costs on these different criminals. I think what's top of mind across a lot of the different disciplines that I cover are um, AI is certainly uh, big and how that will impact crime in all its forms. Um, and and we, we know and are tracking different threat actors that are experimenting with this, claiming to sell different tools that leverage it. Um, I think that the potential for AI in scans is something that I'm, I'm very leery of and uh, scams is, I think they like thankfully getting a lot more attention. I think it's always been our most prolific our highest grossing crime that we've covered. Um, But it, it certainly doesn't get the sensational headlines of, of some of the other things that, that we do. Um, but pig butchering is now a, a a part of our public lexicon. My mom knows what it is, um, and can you um, for, for I, I think it's might not. Can you give me a quick definition? What is pig butchering? Yeah, it's social engineering essentially, so that you can interact with these people in multiple ways. Sometimes they'll just cold text you and strike up a conversation. Sometimes it's on dating sites. Um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, it can be on multiple social platforms or even direct to your phone. And they strike up a relationship with you, uh, sometimes romantic, sometimes just friendly. 
and uh, basically catfish, <laughs> catfish um, people, and mm-hmm. uh, continue to have them invest more and more into a crypto scheme. Um, basically, fatten up the pig and slaughter it. That's where that saying comes from. It's uh, Chinese yeah. for shazu pan, um, and. Um, yeah, it's super devastating, especially because it's agnostic to the price of cryptocurrency. So it, when crypto's booming, we have a lot of newcomers, a lot of investment scams, but these scams are pernicious because we don't see them uh, de- decline with the price of, of crypto because um, when you lure in victims um, through their heartstring, through friendship, through emotion, they're going to pay way more. Um, and we, we've actually calculated that victims of pig butchering and romance scams uh, pay magnitudes more than any other type of scam because you're, you're in love with, you think you're in love with this person, you think you're paying for their father's heart surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, those goes on. And you see smart people who um, even people with law enforcement backgrounds or people who are a little bit more, have a bit more stranger danger falling um, for them because they're getting very good. And and that's why um, I'm extremely concerned about how that's AI, why, yeah, AI could be terrifying there, right? Because it can learn from itself and <laughs> Jesus, yeah. um, what have we done? Uh, well, um, Jackie, Jackie, thank you so much. Um, I, I love these kind of conversations and thank you for sharing your, your history and all the fascinating stories and how you got into this. Um, for folks who want to know more about Chainalysis or yourself, um, t- tell people how they can find you and, and uh, you know just follow along with what you guys are up to. Yeah, I think so. We are on X, formerly Twitter. Um, I'm also on it. I'm Jay Burden's Coven. We, our blog the material we release is incredible. Um, we're constantly releasing new reports. Some are exclusives, investigations, um, macroeconomic statistics. We just released our geographies report talking about the global adoption of cryptocurrency. And uh, right now we're in the full swing of preparing for our end of year crypto crime report, um, which is always um, really, really unique insights. And um, yeah, we also have um, I, some some free training courses on videos online as well on our website. So come check us out. Oh, cool. Yeah, I highly recommend it as well. The, the Crime Report especially is always great reading. I've covered it for a couple of years now. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm really impressed with everything you guys are doing. So again, Jackie, thank you so much for coming on and and, uh, sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music.